Okay, so how we feeling? Um, all right, ready. It's a Monday morning. <laughs> it's a Monday morning. And, and I'm talking to you live from live from Brooklyn, New York. That's what I'm saying. Claire, Renata, and Jack with Live from Brooklyn, New York. Join us today as we chat with four residents of Brooklyn, Jesus and Ben, who've grown up in Brooklyn, and Rachel and Pilar, who moved to Brooklyn after college. In today's episode, we learn from their lived experiences about their family's connections to Brooklyn, their own connections to Brooklyn, and think about the impact of gentrification on each of their own lives and neighborhoods. Listen and learn as we hear about their stories as renters, young adults, and members of their neighborhood communities. Based on their stories, we reflect on their specific positionalities and perspectives, taking a step back to examine their anecdotal evidence in a wider urban developmental context and historical framework. Let's start by getting to know our guests. Could you do me a favor to say your name really quickly? Yeah, my name is Jesus Vasquez, and I'm 20 years old. Yeah, um, my name is Pilar Jefferson. I um, am from Massachusetts, but have lived in New York City for the past five years. Um, I, I first moved after graduating from Vassar College and uh, was working at the Museum of the City of New York and living and renting uh, an apartment in Brooklyn, first in Crown Heights, and then in Bushwick. Okay, so my name is Rachel Renalis. Um, I grew up in New Jersey, like a pretty rural town in New Jersey. Um, I went to culinary school, and after I graduated, I graduated with um, a bachelor's degree in like food business administration with like a concentration in wine, beverage, and hospitality. And I moved to New York. My name is Ben. Um, I live in Bedford Times in Brooklyn. I've lived here since I was about two. Okay. And I moved here from Boston when my parents got divorced, um, and I've been living in the current house that I've been living in since I was like four. Okay, well, um, the first question I have for you today is, uh, when did you move to Brooklyn, and how long have you lived there? We'll hear from Jesus first, followed by Pilar, Rachel, and then Ben. So I moved to Brooklyn around sometime when I was four years old, because, um, you know, my, my parents couldn't really make it work out with each other in the Bronx. I, you know, I guess at some point my mom couldn't really um, afford to support herself and her son any longer because, you know, my dad was out of the picture for that moment. Um, so we moved in evidently to my grandmother's um, apartment in Brooklyn Heights with my grandmother and grandfather. So you've lived almost was more than more than fifteen. So the vast majority of your life, you've been in, in Brooklyn. The, it's, um, yeah, the vast majority of my life, everything as far as I can remember, I, I've lived here. Would you say, just out of curiosity, would you say you identify as someone as as a as a Brooklynite, or would you say you identify with the Bronx? <laughs> I I, def- I identify as a, I think it's a little more com- complex than even that, but I do identify as a Brooklynite. Um, Although I do have to recognize, like, you know, on my mom's side at least, like, everyone is from the Bronx, really. Mm. Like, they're all Puerto Rican. Yeah. Uh, 
but they're all from the Bronx, and like that, that in some way influences me. Like when my grandfather, who I never met, um, my blood grandfather, um, moved here from Puerto Rico. And this is on your mother's. This is on your mother's side. My mother's side, my my um, maternal grandfather. He, it was straight to the Bronx, you know. And um, my dad continued to live in the Bronx after um, him and my mom split up. So I would continually move back and forth between Brooklyn and the Bronx. All right, got um, it. My grandmother and grandfather moved here because um, I don't know the full details, but essentially they know someone who is a landowner, and um, he offered them the opportunity to be the superintendents in this building. Um, in Brooklyn Heights, and my grandmother was like, "I'm not moving to Brooklyn. Like, I'm not <laughs> you know? Yeah, of but course." One day, there was a body found outside of um, where my grandmother and my family used to live. Um, like, someone was shot. And it was basically a crime was committed. So essentially, my grandfather was like, "We need to get out of here. Like, I don't care what you're saying. Like, we're going to Brooklyn." And um, and so my family moved to Brooklyn. And then, you know, when my mom, when I was a little baby and my mom was back in the Bronx, she just didn't really have any other options than to move back in with my grandmother. So, you know, it was just like, it's all basically out of necessity. It's all out of survival. It's not really like choose between this and that. It's like choose to choose to live kind of. Um, so when I graduated from college, I moved initially was subletting an apartment actually in Washington Heights for the summer from a friend of a friend because I was doing an internship at the Met and needed somewhere to stay. So I lived in Washington Heights for a summer um, and then immediately after that um, my best friend from college was going to NYU for grad school and I got a job at the Museum of the City of New York and a couple of other places and so we found an apartment in Crown Heights that we lived in for four years together. Um, and then this past year, my last year in New York, I moved in with my boyfriend and another friend of ours. So it was a three bedroom apartment um, in Bushwick. But you had originally been like just drawn to the city mm -hmm. as a whole. Yeah, um, I was interested in museums and I'm being a museum educator because I went to college in the Hudson Valley, kind of like there was a direct connection mm -hmm. between Vassar and New York City is, is true of a lot of colleges in the Northeast. And uh, so I already had friends who were living in the city and working in various museums. Um, and so I felt like it was kind of, and I also had family. My, I have cousins who live there. My older sister had just moved there about a year previous to my graduation. So it just made a lot of sense for me to be in the yeah. city. Um, when I first originally moved to the city, I was staying with a friend in Bay Ridge, which is like South, Brooklyn. Um, it's like pretty much like as far south as you can go before you're in like Coney Island area. Yeah, I moved in 2000 to Brooklyn, but my mom was a resident of, like grew up in Brooklyn. So Okay, so like she, so your mom had been in Brooklyn pretty much her whole life? Yeah, she also grew up in Bedside, so we moved back to the same neighborhood that she grew up in. Okay, got it. So, so for the past 20 years, you've been living in the same place in Bedside? Yeah. Pretty much? Nice, nice. Um, And so... Do you live alone or with your family or what's your situation yeah, like? Yeah, no, I still live at home. Um, I'm a student at, uh, at SUNY Albany, so I still live at home with my sister. Um, my grandparents live at live with us, and it's my stepdad and my mom. Got it, got it. My grandparents originally arrived here in the 50s because Puerto Rico, uh, Brooklyn was a Puerto Rican enclave. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think my mom, when she 
when her and my uh, dad got separated, she moved to bedside to be close to her parents, mm-hmm. you know, as a single mother, to have that resource, uh, to rely on family. Um, and I think that Brooklyn is, it's a diverse place to raise your kid. kids. I think it's, um, it was when we moved there, the affordable place to raise your kid. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that was the main for sure. Like comfortable. Yeah, comfortable. no, absolutely. And it's familiar too. Yeah. So with these personal and family histories in mind, we wanted to take a moment and step back and think a little bit about why we chose Brooklyn as a good case study to think about gentrification, urban growth, and a changing rental market. Now, and just thinking a little bit about um, why Brooklyn has gained so much popularity and what has its immigration um, looked like in the past. Um, Brooklyn has been a center for immigrants for generations, beginning early in the 19th century. Um, and there, of course, have been historical waves of different immigration, of immigrant populations, um, you know, starting early on with the Irish and other Scandinavian families, um, later to Arab and Spanish. Um, and then there was uh, significant um enclaves of Italians and Puerto Ricans um, in which you can see like the establishment of Puerto Rican populations as soon as in Italian populations as early as 1830. Um, and um, a significant draw in the early years was the establishment of the waterfront ports. Um, the accessibility and job job opportunities provided by the waterfronts kind of served as a significant draw for these immigrant populations Um, and in thinking more about this it's of course important to note that Brooklyn's growth wasn't was obviously deeply tied to the growth of Manhattan Um, in fact in 1860 40 percent of Brooklyn's wage earners worked in Manhattan Um, so there was a large population uh, that would travel by boat um, to Manhattan and then um, in 1883, they built the Brooklyn Bridge. So at this stage, the borough grew ex- ex- the borough grew exponentially um, because of this massive increase of opportunity of for accessibility. Um, and I guess it's just important to note that Brooklyn's market has always been deeply intertwined with Manhattan's market, um, and is um, used because of its affordability and job opportunities. In addition to the history that Renata just offered, Brooklyn's more recent development is also of note in this case. Since 2004, the downtown Brooklyn area alone has added nearly 41 million square feet of residential, commercial, and institutional spaces. More than $10 billion of private investment has been attracted to the area, and the population of greater downtown Brooklyn has grown by nearly 18%, and the population of millennials, specifically, has rose by 30%. All of this speaks to a rise and shift in the demographics of these neighborhoods in Brooklyn and the further gentrification and shift away from families and small businesses towards a more millennial population and demographic. And it speaks to the change in the rental market, as well as the audience that developments and developers are targeting 
To get an understanding of this rental market, we look to the median monthly rent in Fort Greene and Brooklyn Heights in 2000, which was only $720. By 2014, it had risen to $1,800 a month, a price that has continued to rise in the past five years. With this historical context in mind, we wanted to hear a bit more about how this changing rental market has impacted our guests specifically. We return now to Pilar and Rachel to hear about their experiences of renting and getting an apartment and working with landlords and simply being tenants in Brooklyn right now. We think about how their position as newcomers to Brooklyn's neighborhoods counter those of Ben and Jesus, who have lived there for most of their lives. Have a relationship with your landlord, what was that like? So the first place that we lived in, the apartment in Crown Heights, um, we had a management company, yeah, which is a, probably a story that you've heard a lot of times where it was like uh, Crown Heights North Holdings LLC was the name of our landlord. Um, and and so we would get this anonymous envelope from them at the beginning of every month mm -hmm. and put our rent in it and that was it. I never met, so I was actually in California dropping off Sajo at school when we rented the apartment, so I never met the like broker or any of the like official people. My roommate Talia did all of that kind of upfront, so I never saw anybody face to face who was in charge of this particular mm -hmm. building. Um, there were a couple of times when we had problems with like fixing things that uh, I talked to this woman named Shippy on the phone um, who worked for the, the holding company, but it was like all very sketchy. Like they didn't have an email address. They only had a phone number. You couldn't really find them on the internet. Like it was unclear how many buildings they owned and where those buildings were. Um, we had two different superintendents during the time that I was living there. Because the holding company was not like particularly responsive, there was no other good recourse for like getting anything done. And then um, within like a month, he had brought my roommate to the same apartment and the price had like dropped. And we were sort of like, it's on the first floor of, um, it's on like the first floor of this building. And it used to be a one bedroom. We think that that's why the price ended like dropping and dropping. Cause like, unless it was like a couple like moving in there, we don't really think that anybody else would have like really been okay with that like sort of situation. Um, and then it finally like dropped to where we like could afford it. We pretty much were like, okay, we can afford this. And then everything happened so fast. Like, absolutely, it was like wild. He was like, you need to move in this weekend. Like, it was like a Wednesday pretty much. And he was like, he like send in all your applications. It was like a mad rush for like me, my roommate, and like both of our families to like get together all this information. And like, I was starting a new job too. And like, we ended up signing my lease like in the lobby of like the restaurant that I was working at, like in the coffee shop that I was working at. It so was the like, landlord you in order to make it go fast enough. So it was all through, we never actually, in probably the entire time that, like, we have lived there, I've never actually, like, spoken to or had contact with our actual landlord. So then who and like there's through? Sorry, say that again? So does that mean the landlord has hired that sort of is more directly in contact with? So there is, like, a, like, a, like, an office, I guess. That, that like sort of handles all the things. Like if we want to contact anybody, like if it was like a maintenance issue or something, there's pretty much like a phone number and like an email that like directs you to like this office. I think it's, I wanna say it's like a leasing office, but it's like a management office, I guess, mm -hmm. that is actually not even in New York. I think it's like in New Jersey, um, who like, you can talk to like 
every time I've tried to ask, like, can we speak to like the owners? It's like kind of like ambiguous of mm -hmm. like who that is. So, like we've, I've never had any like direct answer of like what was going on. And usually they're just like, well, somebody else will be here tomorrow. And like, we just go through emails and it's never a straight answer. So you just have that, like, so office, wild. that office number to call for anything and everything. Yeah. And then like, yeah, and that's the only number that we have. And is that a nine to five sort of situation? Like, are they not? Yeah, definitely. Like if, and I learned that too, like over the course of the, like going back and forth with trying to get our like lease renewed, um, where like they pretty much would contact us on like a Monday at like three o'clock and be like, well, actually when they contact us about their lease renewal, they were like, we need to hear back from you like tomorrow by noon. Otherwise, it's not, and I was like, no, like that's obscene. Like you're expecting to give me like less than 12 hours to like do this, <laughs> like wild. But then when we answered them, they didn't answer us for like two weeks. And it was like, mm -hmm. they were like, sorry, like, because of, because of everything, like nobody's in the office. And it was like, what if like my like toilet's overflowing, <laughs> you know, like what if something happens? Like there's nobody there to be able to like answer the phone. Like that's so bad. It's crazy. Both Rachel and Pilar's lack of ability to contact their landlord directly and instead only being able to contact management companies or nine to five offices that handle the tenants or any situations they have is a common trend in gentrifying practices and um, urban development that's taking place in Brooklyn right now. Um, unlike Jesus and Ben's families, who we'll hear from next, who are actually landlords and managers who are invested in the community themselves, the newer gentrifying landlords are not personally or socially invested in the community but and almost always live elsewhere and are removed entirely from the heart of the community. This, of course, shifts everything and we'll hear more about the contrast as we hear from Ben and Jesus and their family's experiences of being managers and land landlords themselves. Well, my mom actually owns the house that we live in, so we, own a, uh, we live in a brownstone. Mm -hmm. um, and we're actually the landlords, and we rent to um, our upstairs neighbor. Got it. Um, so you said your mother was at an event yesterday? Yes. Um, she was at an event on providing about uh, rent relief. Um, mm -hmm. And she spoke on that. I think she's in, as her as a landlord her, herself, she's still in favor of. Um, rent suspension and rent relief yeah um, interesting because and you know my grandmother is the one that works with the landlord and she is the superintendent of the whole building so it's like you know it's it's it's, it's interesting um being the superintendent's grandson and like having that dynamic because often also because Brooklyn Heights is a very expensive neighborhood and I tell people I live there like oh, oh like, <laughs> but it's like like we we live here under the expense of taking care of the apartment and working with the um working with the tenants and stuff so um, um and so yeah. i know this is because um of my you know just hanging out spending time with you but you have to take out the i don't know if you still do but you i remember when we were growing up you had chores that you had to do chores might be the wrong word that you had to do for the whole building right yeah yeah i like i um or rather, we, uh, you know, we organize and take out the garbage for the whole building. And on every Tuesday, we bring the garbage upstairs in the backyard. Um, and then the, uh, you know, the people take it. So in hearing both Ben and Jesus' responses, it's clear that even though their families are in 
sort of positions of power within their neighborhoods, whether that be a superintendent or a landlord. They're invested in the communities in a personal, different way, having either grown up there or lived there for years and years and years. Um, that's really different from the experiences that Pilar and um, Rachel had with their landlords that are newer and have recently developed the area. Um, and this just speaks to the deep ties that Jesus and Ben's families have to this area in a completely different way um, that just comes with time and generational connection to Brooklyn as a place. This brings us to our next question, where we ask how each of these people see themselves being a part of their local community and how they feel their community responds to them. We'll start by hearing from Ben. So how do you relate to your surrounding community members? I mean, your neighbors or, like you said, your local deli guy or, or any people around? I think um, definitely on my block there's, like, a sense of camaraderie. I think a lot of these people have seen me grow up. Mm -hmm. um, Best Eye is a black neighborhood, black and brown neighborhood, but definitely 90% black. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm Puerto Rican, um, but I still think that those communities have coexisted for so long. Mm -hmm. um, I think that right now it's very interesting to be in bed with all this, the social climate and the social movements that are going on right now. Um, you know, bed is a very, uh, I think, iconic black neighborhood, like mm -hmm. similar to Harlem. Um, yeah. And there's been a lot of like protest and things going on in the neighborhood that I've been a part of and um, that have really like kind of I think reached the core of that, what Bed-Stuy is. Jesus responds to this question by remembering an instance where he felt like others were looking at him like he didn't belong. Of my crib and, you know, uh, you know, not from everyone, but from a handful of people, you, you would, you could tell that they live in this neighborhood and they would never imagine that I've lived here for as long as I have. Mm. Um, and like even people, even my neighbors, like even neighbors that live in the building, like just such bad energy sometimes from people, you know, like this, even one time when I was walking in, because like you need a key to enter just the front door of my crib, mm -hmm. um, buzzer. So even this one night I was walking into um, the apartment and this dude had the key in the door and he didn't unlock it when he seen me walking up the stairs and he asked me like, do you live here? And I was like, I was like, Jeez. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm Gina's grandson. <laughs> I, like you, you might've even lived there longer than him. Yeah, exactly. And you know, sometimes that's very, you know, if I think about it long enough, I could, I guess I could allow it to frustrate me. Cause it's like, not only have I lived here for, since I was a baby boy, but also like, you know, like my family has, has laughed and cried and suffered and rejoiced in this house like my my cousin like i watched my cousin die in this house like mm -hmm. you know and like just really really valuable shit to me like this is a very important house to my family so like when people like look at me like like i don't belong here it's like it's like you have like, so you have I, yeah you have so many emotions grounded in there yeah yeah it's just not fair like why do i have to prove myself to you like mm -hmm. you know Pilar, on the other hand, recounts what it was like for her to 
enter the neighborhood and see a community that was already established in their reaction to her. You could just see, like, people greeting each other when they were walking down the street, like, you know, old friends, people who knew each other super well. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And so then when other people like us came into the neighborhood, uh, it took a little while to, like, figure out who the local faces were and, like, who were the kind of common denominators of things. Mm-hmm. Um the last even one <laughs> there was one time my roommate and I were walking down the sidewalk and neither of us I mean I'm not white presenting she she is for the most part but there were like people who walked down the sidewalk and were like oh those white girls you know to us and I was like I understand what you're saying yeah right? <laughs> you're like, like just kind of even from interaction right. with you're identifying you us as a group yeah who is coming into the neighborhood yeah which is interesting next we hear from Pilar as she describes a blink fitness in her neighborhood as a microcosm of the demographic interactions and gentrification dynamics at play. Like it was just things kind of um, the blink fitness. There, so there was a, there was a gym on the that got put in probably the second year that we moved there. So it was relatively early on, um, but it was a really fascinating because blink is a pretty cheap gym. It's like thirty bucks a month for your kind of basic membership, and and so. The majority of people, whether you were gentrifiers or not in the neighborhood, could afford it. So it was this interesting, like, microcosm of the neighborhood. Um, <laughs> and there were definitely, like, there was definitely a separation from, like, the young, mostly black and brown people who worked there and, like, the everyday, you know, customers who were also pr- primarily black and brown. And then there were, like, these, like, lo- small pods of, like, mostly white kids who would like come together to the gym and like kind of stay by themselves and like not really interact with a ton of other people um so it was another space where I often made a very concerted effort to like be friendly and to like ask people questions because I felt like there was this clear divide that I could see in the space itself you know this raises a lot of thoughts for me in thinking about um the impacts of how people choose to engage with their neighbors and their neighborhoods um in Pilar's discussion the white gym goers could be seen as an example of like disinvested community members, um, which may be a central component of active gentrification. Um, so I guess, is there an importance in the way we choose to engage the community members and does that correlate um, with one's contributions, personal contributions to gentrification? Um, and Pilar personally takes a different route in how she engages. Um, So what might the repercussions of that be? And what is the significance of this, perhaps? Um, These white gym goers sort of lack effort, the efforts to link link with their community members. Um, And this sort of ties to the dissonance between Jesus and his community and the community's ability to understand him and his art as central to his identity and to his claim to the space and maybe as well his like deep connect his super deep connection to the space um the disengagement creates like this bedrock of misunderstanding seemingly so this sort of pushes us to the question of what is the significance uh, as it relates to gentrification of creating understanding um when in this case there is a significant debates of claims to space In answer to Renato's question, we return to Jesus as he talks about what it means to have relationship to space and have claim over space um, with his own intersecting identities and what that looks like for him 
within the community of Brooklyn. You said you feel like you have a lot of negative experiences, even if they're not necessarily always tangible, that you feel like with maybe your neighbor or with people who live in your area. I mean, anything else you want to speak on that topic? Yeah. So I've been, um, you know, in the past year or so, I've kind of um, been navigating the the world of uh, graffiti. Um, But just to kind of step away from that word because it has its own prejudices, just the idea of, um, you know, trying to get in touch with my my indigenous roots, and I kind of look I look to painting and writing on walls as kind of a way of this very um, sacred uh, language that's kind of always been embedded in me, embedded in the New York that my mother grew up in, the one that my father grew up in. Um, so when you say roots, are you talking about like New York roots? I'm talking about New York roots, but even deeper than that, I'm talking about the roots of being of being Puerto Rican and the roots of being mm-hmm. Colombian mm-hmm. and having being second generation and you know having to kind of work with the lack of translation from mm-hmm. those motherlands to New York. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I've been. I mean, I hope this doesn't get me in trouble because <laughs> uh, I know there's there's vigilantes out here in this neighborhood, or maybe um, villains in this neighborhood, depending on the perspective. Who uh, you know take down all of my tags, um, and it's kind of I, I have a I have a theory that it's a group of people, but um, I I've been um, writing a lot on the streets here because I feel like with in the same conversation that before when the people look at me as if I don't live here. It's like, Mm -hmm. I guess writing on the walls and on, you know, just different areas here, it's like, it's me indirectly, but also very, very directly saying, like, I, not only have I lived here for mad long, but, like, bro, like, my family is from here, like, my, my blood travels through this place thickly, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um... So in a way, like, I feel like I really relate with Brooklyn. I really relate with the community, but more specifically Brooklyn Heights. I think that a lot of the Brooklyn Heights people would <laughs> would um, would uh, vanish me from the kingdom here. Mm-hmm. If, if they really knew who I was, I guess, and where I'm from. Okay, so the next question we have is around neighborhood change and gentrification um and so we're just hoping that you can describe any change in your neighborhood that you've witnessed or experienced whether that be new businesses coming in new people moving in um renovation happening in your area um or just a general shift in in demographics and the population of of who lives in your neighborhood and the prices and such After hearing from Jesus about his own complicated relationship with his own neighborhood and um, the community members, he talks about the shifts that he's noticed here. Um, I guess I would say, you know, just, you know, I guess some of the community members have changed a little bit. Um, I think that my mom and uncle and grandmother could probably answer this question way better because they were here since, you know, the 90s and the 80s. Absolutely. Um, But even if there's anything, it doesn't need to be, you know, like a drastic change. But in your last, let's say, 10 years, maybe not even uh, like last six years. I mean, since you've been paying attention, I guess, have you noticed some changes? Uh, Lots of, 
independently owned family owned businesses have been replaced by uh, you know low key franchise businesses maybe not even franchise just very you know establishments in a way establishments yeah yeah uh, yeah uh, and especially COVID you know hit a lot of those types of businesses pretty hard um, so would so, you say, um, so the next question I have here is, are there certain kinds of businesses that have become more prevalent while other types are closing more? And it sounds like you're saying family businesses are closing more and there are more sort of out of, out of neighborhood companies or, you know, like we said, establishments that are sort of coming into the neighborhood. Definitely. You if think it's, it's, not, it's raising the know, price level, would you say? No. Yeah. I mean, well. Probably not too much because Brooklyn Ice has always been pretty expensive. Yeah, absolutely. But they're definitely raising the price level because, like, now there's a lot of very new luxury condos, apartments there that have completely changed the skyline itself. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point where everyone who lives along the along like the promenade can no longer really see, um, you know, the, the Lower Manhattan skyline. Mm-hmm. So. If it's not a coffee shop that's taking over independent business, then it's some type of land. It's some type of like um, residential thing. Okay. Okay. Following his description that a lot of old businesses are being replaced by residential buildings um, for new, typically millennial renters, um, he describes ways that the populations living within the apartment buildings are shifting. The only thing that I would say is that a lot of the people who used to live in this building have moved out and there's lots of new people. In the building? In the building. And lots lots of new tenants that live in this building. Um, Like, over what period of time would you say that like a lot of that like turnover happened? Um, would it be like, you think that picked up recently? I think 2013, uh, moving forward from then especially a lot of new people in and out of the building yeah um next we hear from pilar and her experience of living in a neighborhood that was in the process of being vastly and quickly gentrified living out at utica avenue so it's pretty far out that's kind of like the edge of crown heights before Mm -hmm. it turns into brownsville which is also a historically black neighborhood um But it was interesting that we were living that far out because Crown Heights has gentrified rapidly in the last 10 years and we were really living at the end that was still very like solidly like black and community centered, um, which was really fascinating. And so like what that meant was that the majority of the businesses in the neighborhood were still small, like community owned businesses. You know, we had a lot of Caribbean restaurants. Um, we had like a, a, like a family owned juice bar, a couple of little like mom and pop grocery stands on the corners. When Airbnb started becoming more of a thing in like the last couple of years that we were living there, it would be funny because there would be occasional days where I'd get on the train and suddenly there'd be this giant group of like tall blonde white people and I'd be like, where are you coming from? Who are you? And it was always like tour groups who had found an Airbnb in the neighborhood or like were staying at one of like the little hotels off of Atlantic Avenue because it was the cheapest place to be. And we're kind of, it was weird because they like took up so much space. Pilar goes on to talk about the specifics of her apartment building and their unusual nature and the fact that they weren't all young college students that were moving in as renters. Unusual 
for people, for young people moving to the city in that it hadn't been recently renovated, and so it wasn't, like, mostly young, like, you know, college kids, like, just graduated who had come from liberal arts colleges around, mm -hmm. like, 24 units, and we were one of two or three, like, I'm mixed black and white, and my roommate is white and Asian, and uh, we were one of only two or three built units in the building that were, like, not families, young single people under the age of 30, and not black. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a really, it was primarily black and primarily family oriented, the building we were living in. Yeah. Um, and that wasn't true at the end. There were definitely, there was this monstrosity of a building that they like gutted and put up across the street by the time that we left. Um, and it was clear that it, they'd like flipped it from being family owned to being this kind of gentrified space and like young white people were moving in yeah but that was next we hear from ben yeah so my neighborhood is definitely a residential neighborhood um right so i don't know if there's people like coming into the neighborhood mm -hmm. for specific things mm -hmm. um i think as gentrification process has happened in bedside i think bedside is one of the hotbeds of gentrification in brooklyn um but uh there's been more restaurants um opening up mm -hmm more like coffee shops and stuff. Mm -hmm. There's still also your bodegas and your pizza shops and your Chinese food shops. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, so I think, obviously, you, you see the the residential, right? Because as, as I said, Bedside uh, is mostly residential. Mm -hmm. uh, like, there are condos and newly built apartment buildings that you can see, right? Uh, yeah. That are, that are visually not the same as the other buildings in the neighborhood um i don't know what and that's like i feel like that's the gentrification architecture right mm. like you know when the building kind of doesn't fit it, it. you can it's so um, clear it, yeah right like yeah. it's and it's like oh okay um and then of course you see the people that are coming in and out of that building they don't look the same as yeah the rest of their neighborhoods um, has it felt like a gradual process or do you feel like it's like yeah, oh no, shit like this is gradual right i think it was originally like some individuals and then it became families and then it became mm -hmm. a lot more families um and so i i think from going to see never seeing white people in in your neighborhood to seeing like little white kids on scooters <laughs> a little yeah definitely a difference yeah of course um it's interesting you say bedside is like a hotbed for gentrification i feel like it is now, but I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like it didn't go first. You know what I mean? It wasn't like the same. It wasn't as early as like Williamsburg or even Fort Greene, for example. Would you say yeah, that like no. you've seen it maybe more recently? Yeah, no, I definitely think that um, it trickles down, right? I think Williamsburg is a fully uh, a gentrified, like a gentrified neighborhood, right? Like Absolutely, Williamsburg yeah. has very few people of color. Mm. Um, but I think with neighbor neighborhoods like that's die and for green i think it's a different kind of gentrification i don't think it's hipsters per se i think it's mm -hmm. more families okay um and i think that has a different impact on schools and um resources that are actually de like devoted into the neighborhood because those are parents that are invested into their community yeah um it's like i think that's in a whole nother uh, conversation about where those resources come from when neighborhoods are gentrified. Yeah, that's that's so interesting, honestly, to think about that. Like, depending on who are the people that are gentrifying, it can lead to more. I don't know if this is the right term, but almost like community enrichment. I mean, just like 
because people are interested in being there for a completely different purpose. It's not like they're there just to move out. It's like they're there to really like build yeah. a family and or something. It's also interesting to see like right like who gets left behind. Uh, absolutely. Exactly. Who is it that benefits? Who aren't met. Yeah. The area of Brooklyn that like we live in that kind of happened probably like a few years ago. Yeah. Because like you can tell like a lot of the restaurants that are there are they're not they're they're relatively new, um, and like there are. I think a lot of the buildings that are in, because I know like Brooklyn Heights is also like a historic neighborhood. So like, I don't think that they're like, I think that there's like some kind of regulations for like what they can like tear down or what they can put up. But I'm pretty sure a lot of like the townhouses and the brownstones and things like that have just been like remodeled and remodeled. Here is another moment where we're wanting to take a step back and think a little bit more deeply about the different responses that we heard from each of the people we're talking to. In particular, we wanted to highlight Rachel's nonchalance about gentrification and that her understanding of it was something that was, had already happened and that she was sort of passive in, um, in that process. And we found that to be interesting, particularly as she's like exactly the um, demographic that's being targeted in terms of gentrifying development. Um, and everything that Ben and Jesus and Pilar as well are describing as as Brooklyn shifting towards. We also wanted to step back here and think a little bit more critically about how we've been talking about gentrification and if there is any way that it could be a positive thing and in what context and what that would look like um, and just think about both sides of that story, or at least complicate it. So Renata's going to reflect on a podcast that we all listen to. Um, in reflecting on Justin Davidson's contributions to the Brian Lair show on when gentrification works, he sort of pushes us to ask the fundamental question of when is gentrification good? Or perhaps is this a term that we should really be using? So with everything we've talked about, it's easy to say, no, probably not. It's hard to think of gentrification as ever being a positive thing. But David su suggests that there has to be a line uh, of bringing money into a community that is positive. And additionally, that I guess that gentrification and displacement need to be distinguished. Um, because they're not always mutually exclusive. So this idea that he suggests it's like bringing money into a community um, is positive. In fact, no one is probably going to ever argue against putting more money into low quality education systems, right? And then more importantly, he even pushes, you know, that development should not have to lead to displacement. Um, and often should be defined separately because um, in current debates, they are super conflated, gentrification and displacement. Um, but then moving into our research, uh, we've already been able to see like a significant difference between the way newcomers and the way that those who are like Brooklyn born even watch and observe their own communities. Um, so to further say, newcomers are not playing, paying nearly close near paying nearly as close attention. Um, so can newcomers really use their money in a positive, direct way? In other words, even if they have, even if they bring money with them, 
are they able to direct that money in a way that reflects the community's needs um, if they're not able to observe and sort of pick up on the on their community in the same way? One potential response to the question of whether or not newcomers can actually uh, be beneficial with the money they bring into the community, or one response which involves sociological theory, comes from Lewis Mumford. And so Lewis Mumford um, had the understanding that planning should neither be just letting the masses come together to produce uh, necessary social drama or just technical organizing. And so Mumford's understanding was that neither would result in what's necessary for a city, which Mumford defined as to be able to provide a space for social drama to occur. So the planning of cities does need to take into account sociological understanding. Um, and so to tie this back into the question of can people with new, can newcomers to a community with money actually make a positive impact, I think there is a limitation on that unless sociological concepts and nuances of the community are taken into account. And I think that's really the issue in terms of is it a benefit to bring in new money versus like at what point does that just become gentrification and displacement for the communities that are already there? Join us next episode for a bonus conversation with these same individuals as we tackle what it means to rent and live in Brooklyn during 2020. We think about COVID-19 and its implications for each of these people individually, admits gentrification, admits a moment of social justice and civil unrest, and in light of the Black Lives Matter movement and how it impacts each of these people and their neighborhood communities. Thanks for joining us. Till next time.